Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome to My Time Capsule. My guest in this episode is the actor Jim Piddock. Jim was in the Christopher Guest comedies Best in Show as the dog show commentator with Fred Willard, A Mighty Wind, For Your Consideration and Mascots, the last of which he co-wrote and produced. He was also the writer and producer of the film Tooth Fairy, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Jim emigrated to the USA from Great Britain in 1982 and has had a stellar career in film, on TV and on Broadway ever since. He's been in such movies as Lethal Weapon 2 with Mel Gibson, Independence Day with Will Smith, Austin Powers in Goldmember with Mike Myers, Love for Rent, Meet the Spartans, Falling Up with Snoop Dogg, Get Him to the Greek with Russell Brand and Jonah Hill, The Dictator with Sasha Baron Cohen, The Ruttles 2, Can't Buy Me Lunch with Eric Idle, 1915, The Cold Light of Day with Henry Cavill, Bruce Willis and Sigourney Weaver, the Woody Allen film You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger and Kill Your Friends with James Corden. Well, they can't all be good. His screenplay Frankel is being shot this year with Jeremy Irons playing the lead role. On TV, he's been in Friends, Modern Family, The Royals, Designated Survivor, Get Shorty, Training Day, The Tracy Ullman Show, Murder, She Wrote, The Gina Davis Show, The Drew Carey Show, Lost, Batman, Law and Order LA, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and many more. And on Broadway, he was in Noel Coward's Present Laughter, Noises Off, The Knack, Designed for Living, and other shows which he talks about in this recording. So... Quite a good decision to go to America and see if you can make it in New York. I mean, if you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere. Apart from Colchester Rep, obviously, that is a tough audience. Jim's memoir, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, is available now. So let's find out the things that Jim Piddock would put in his time capsule, if it's big enough, as well as a little bit of lovey chat between two old actors. Yep, sorry. Have fun. 
Hey! Ha-ha! How are you? I'm good, thank you. We've done it. Yes! I was saying I watched um, Mascots this afternoon. Wow! Made me laugh a lot. Good, thank you. That's very kind of you. I've just finished working with Zach Woods. Oh, isn't he wonderful? Absolutely amazing. He never does the same take twice. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I I never do the same take twice because I always fuck something up every (laughs) single time. (laughs) Yep, me and you alike. That's a whole different school of acting. Yeah, that's right. Well, talking of schools of acting, what an extraordinary thing you've done. What an amazing journey you've had. Um, Yeah, I I, I sort of got to a point in my life where, where, uh, you know, you hit 60 and um, and then the pandemic sort of hit shortly afterwards. Mm. And so you do sort of start to look back a tiny bit. And I suppose when you're in something, you're doing it, you're not, not really aware, you don't have that perspective. So... That gave me the time to look back and I kind of went, oh, yeah, you know, I've actually had a very varied career, which was nice. Yeah. Um, certainly wasn't anything like I imagined it would be. <laughs> and also then, I, I think I told you, during the pandemic, I wrote this book, uh, mm. which was sort of semi-autobiographical. And then you have to really dig into what you've done. And it's actually, I find it quite hard. I, I mean, it, it's it's not always a pleasant experience to rake over one's entire life. Um, it's painstaking, and it's and I, and I have a tendency never to really look backwards. I always look forwards or straight in front of me. So it was kind of unnatural, and it, it was like pulling teeth at times. <laughs> but but the result, finally, I was very happy with. Yeah, um, it's hard, you know. It's very different from writing a screenplay or a TV show. Mm. You have to go. What, what's interesting that's happened in your life that isn't about you? Really? Yeah, because no one gives a crap about my life story. I mean, there are so many A-list memoirs out there. And so I had to really make it more like a Gerald Durrell type book where, or even some of David Niven's writing where you're, you're actually, it's much more about the observed than the observer because I felt that that was what people would be interested in. Yeah. Well, if it's anything like The Moon's a Balloon, then it's going to be brilliant. What's it called? Well, I love, I love that you said that and I'll tell you why in a minute. The, the book's called um, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales From A Life In Hollywood. Uh, and it's based, the title comes from a particular story. Uh, but um, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I love those books, The Moon's A Balloon and, and Bring On The Empty mm-hmm. Horses. And it probably was why I ended up coming to Hollywood because it sort of, I found it very inspiring. And the book's gone out to uh, a bunch of sort of celebrities to endorse. And I got about three dozen back. And two people, Russell Brand, and the wonderful Scottish actor James Cosmo both said lovely things, but they said it was the first time they'd read a, a memoir since The Moon's a Balloon. Oh. That they found it that entertaining about Shane. Oh, Shavis, brilliant. Which, are, which was literally, if I had written my dream review, <laughs> my dream quote, it would have been that. So I was absolutely thrilled because that to me is like, oh, okay, that's all I ever could have possibly asked for. Absolutely. When you speak to young Russell, as I like to call him, yes, do send my love. I did a television series quite a long time ago, and he was one of the children in it. Oh, my God. And he looks so different as a child. I remember in his book, that picture of him, yeah. you show it to people and you go, who's this? And no one will ever guess it. No. This kind of chubby, nondescript, I mean, he looks completely different. Yeah. But he's a funny, he's fun, Russell's funny because he's Marmite to, to so many people. Um, uh, and... And I worked with him a couple of times and don't know him super well, Mm. but I found him incredibly engaging on a one-to-one basis. What's lovely about him too is that all his faults, every quirk, his narcissism, his addiction, his self-involvement, his sex, everything is just out there. And he 
he owns it. Yeah. And, and is one of the most evolved people I think I've ever worked with, oddly, you know, in terms of self-awareness. And, and uh, I adored him. And I think, I think, you know, he's been sort of very sweet uh, ever since I've kind of worked together with him whenever we've talked. But let, let, let's get back to you, because this is shows about you. Um, <laughs> I mean, we met briefly at, up in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. but I was looking and, and I, I mean, our careers in some ways have been quite similar. And we've been sort of quintessential character people or supporting actors. Yes. We both write. You may have some musical ability, which I don't have at all. <laughs> but it was it was fascinating to look at and go, oh, yeah, that's sort of a journey that more might have had if I'd stayed in England. And if you'd come to America, you might have had the similar sort of journey that I had. I had exactly that thought. I thought, well, yeah. uh, the thing that stopped me doing it almost certainly was the fact that I was married with young children. Right, right. And so I I didn't have that freedom, really, I suppose, or the nerve, you know. I mean, I, I have to admire your nerve to sort of go from, well, here I am, an English actor, acting in rep and doing, you know, doing the odd job here and there. It's going very well, thank you. And then suddenly you go to Broadway and do a one-man show, did you do? It was. I, well, I did a one-man show in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, and then it took off. It really it was one of those weird things. I just knocked on people's doors and... Nobody was remotely interested. And it was a show about a soccer goalkeeper playing uh, and talking, and it was a crazy show. And then finally, somebody's show fell out, a small 99-seat theatre, their show fell out, first show of their season, and they said, how quickly can you get it together? Which I did, and uh, it was bizarre. I mean, it was very strange. I had four people in the audience on the second night, (laughs) and um, they all sat at the front. Then the reviews came out the next day, and it was a, a big hit, which was lovely. And... Before I knew it, one thing led to another, and um, six months later, I was starring on Broadway in something completely different. It was a, it was a banal cow play, mm-hmm. uh, Present Laughter, with George C. Scott. But but it was a, it was a just a, a life really came at me very fast in that year. Yeah, I would have liked to have played Roland Maul. Yeah, mm. you know who played it in our production, no. and I shared a dressing room with Nathan Lane. Really. That's a jump, isn't it? These are people that you've been watching on film and television. Well, Nathan, I hadn't. Nathan was had done a TV show. He'd done a TV series, which I hadn't seen, with Mickey Rooney. And it was his first ever performance in New York, on Broadway. And it was mine, and it was an act, a lovely actress called Dana Ivey. Kate Burton, Richard Burton's daughter, uh, who's a wonderful actress. It was her Broadway debut. She'd just left drama school. And we've all remained um, friends ever since. Mm. I met Burton once. How was that? It was thrilling. As you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Really thrilling. Yeah. I mean, what an icon. I mean, um, mm. I, I obviously met him through Kate in those days. And um, yeah, you just, it's, it's, a, it's the same when I met Anthony Hopkins for the first time. You just, you're transfixed yeah. by the voice, let alone the visual of seeing that face. Yeah. And of course, Hopkins does a brilliant burden. Well, of course, yes. Welsh people are all there, going to do themselves. You know? <laughs> Actually, I have to say, I did sneak a look also at Eric Idle's thing that you did. What about Dick? Isn't that brilliant? It's really funny. What a show that was. That was an extraordinary show because, I mean, Eric packed more double entendres <laughs> into that two hours than anyone's ever done in the history of theatre or any form of art. 
But what I mean, what a cast! It was oh, uh, as Russell Brand, Billy Connolly, Tim Curry, yeah. Eric Idle, uh, Eddie Azard, Jane Leaves, myself, uh, Tracy Ullman, and Sophie Winkleman. Unbelievable! And in the first version we did, we had Emily Mortimer, who's just wonderful too. Lovely. It's a strange world to come from, isn't it? That thing of having such a famous father. Yes. And then, in a way, becoming more famous. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if anything we've talked about is... is uh... I have no idea. We shall see where we go. You just piece it together. I caught up with your show and I loved it because it just got such a clever, clear premise. And it actually kept me awake at night because I was overthinking it, <laughs> going... I woke up, and the, you know, I was slightly jet-lagged because I got back from London on Sunday and you wake up at three or four anyway. And I was, I suddenly wake up going... Oh, what what is the purpose? Is it is it for future generations to maybe discover? Or is it something I want to keep and then discover later in my life? Or or maybe we can think about reincarnation. And if I come back in another form, <laughs> what would I like to find that this other life had left? And I could get to all these areas of absolute nonsense kind of thought. And then narrowing it down. I mean, it became like a a, a kind of competition of Okay, I've got the best ten now. I've got to narrow it oh, down my here. God, brilliant! I, I, I was very enjoyable, but I took it way too seriously. No, no. <laughs> in a way, it's it's my fault because I don't define it enough. If I said no, these are very strict rules, and this is what you do, but I'd leave it very open and see what people come up with. I loved listening to them. I mean, I, I kind of almost got hooked. I had to sort of stop <laughs> because I wasn't doing any, any, anything else. Um, but but and also people people I know or met I mean Stephen Fry I don't know well but I'd done a charity mm. thing with and I've been, always been a massive fan yeah. Craig Ferguson I've worked with and adore mm. and thought Craig's was fabulous he's he seems in such a good place yeah uh, just mentally he's just wonderful to listen to uh, and, and Kevin Day Mark Steele Giles Paley Phillips are all Crystal Palace fans so mm-hmm. I knew them and then Robert Bathurst I was actually at school with were you really yeah we were at Worth Abbey yeah. Oh, he's just round the corner from me. That's right. You're in Tunbridge Wells, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, we have a few mutual friends. I haven't seen him for a while. A long while. We both played the same part in Noises Off, him in the West End and me on Broadway. Right. And that's probably the last time I spoke to him was around that time. Um, But Robert was in the year below me and we used to do reviews together at school. Good Lord. Because I grew up in Sevenoaks, very close. Right. And I was reading a a Bob Mortimer's book I just read recently. Yeah. And for some reason, this is how one sort of gets an image of people in your mind. I thought, how unlikely that he would live in Tunbridge Wells because Bob is su- such a kind of a Geordie. You know, you just go, you, I know. you, you imagine him sort of walking down a, one of those streets, like in The Meaning of Life, you know, those kind of northern streets. Yes, you do. But, of course, we do have a journey in life that we don't always end up. Yes. So we should really talk about the things that you've chosen to put into the time capsule. Yes, exactly. Well, the first thing is... It's a, both a human condition and it embodies a life-changing moment for me. Mm. Um, my first day at drama school, I'd done a lot of acting at university but um, had no formal training. And I kind of went to this uh, one-year postgraduate um, drama school thing. And the first day I was there, um, it's quite intimidating, you know, because you sort of you don't know what the standard's going to be like and there's all these other people and you, you're trying to impress people and mm. uh, got through the morning okay and I went out for lunch and a few people had brought their own lunch or some people were living nearby and went and I went off to a small Chinese hole in the wall Chinese restaurant and ate a f- really fucking huge lunch and <laughs> I came back I was really hungry because I wasn't used to being up that early after university <laughs> I, you, know, you roll out of bed at sort of 2 p.m yeah. and I felt like I'd already done a day's work and I, I had this huge meal I went back and I looked at the board to what the 
next class was, which I should have done before I went to lunch because it was it was movement. <laughs> and that wasn't the kind of movement I particularly wanted to have at that kind of moment. And we had to wear these black tights with black roll neck sweaters. And I was so self-conscious. I mean, it was just so odd. I went into this class and there was a, a rather camp uh, American um, teacher and he said, well, we're going to start off with um, headstands. And so here's the <laughs> mat and there's two people will spot you here. You go into your headstand and we'll hold your ankles and you roll out of it. So I stood in line and a few people did theirs and they were oh, yeah, pretty good. And I got up, got into my headstand somehow and I thought, oh, I'm doing okay, not so bad. And I rolled out of it. You held there for a few seconds. They said, and release and off you go. And <laughs> I came down on the mat and I I did release. I actually released the loudest, hardest, sharpest fart you have ever heard in your life. It, it literally resonated around the studio. It was so loud. And I lay there on the mat with my eyes closed. And it's that it's like that moment when if you, you've had children, when your kid falls over and there's that horrible two-second, three-second pause before the scream comes. Mm-hmm. And I was I had, had that two, three-second pause and I thought, this whole room is going to explode with laughter. And it didn't come. And I waited a few more seconds and I finally opened one eye, looked up, and everybody was standing above me, looking down at me as if I was in an open grave. <laughs> and and they, they looked really concerned. And the teacher said oh, my God, what was that? (laughs) And without hesitation, I said, it's an old football injury. It happens every so often. It's my ankle. (laughs) And he said, are you going to be okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I just just might need a bit of a hand up. And And so these actually two rather lovely women picked me up and carried me over to the the bench. (laughs) And I sat on the bench for the rest of the class watching it. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not sure I need to do this drama course. I can act. Yeah. Uh, that was it for me. That was, I know I can be an actor because I got away with that. And in a way better than all of them because they were completely convinced by it. It, it was extraordinary. It was like a gunshot, the fart. It was so loud. Uh, and it did sound like something cracking. And then afterwards in the men's dressing room, uh, there was a student there who actually also happened to be American. And um, everyone was saying, you're going to be okay, you know. And you know, I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Usually, you know, a day or two, it's fine. And in fact, sometimes it's, you know, an hour or two. In fact, I'll tell you what, it feels pretty good right now, you know. Yes. And, and then everyone left and this one guy hung back and he said, uh, can I ask you something, Jim? And I said, yeah, sure. He said, you farted, didn't you? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, fucking A, man. And he high-fived me. Uh, and we were fast friends afterwards. Yeah. But that was a turning point for me because I went, I can do it. I can act. Mm. It was stupid. It was a silly moment. Um, so for me, the first thing I want to put in the time capsule, and I, and I, I pretty much guarantee no one else has chosen this, is flatulence. <laughs> I'd like to put flatulence in, not the smell. That would be horrible to open that capsule in in how many years' time. But the sound of flatulence has always made me laugh. (laughs) It helped me define me becoming an actor. And I think it is a primal comedy condition uh, of the human body. I mean, if you get a baby and you make a fart noise, nine out of ten babies will laugh. (laughs) Yes. You know, even grandparents laugh. I, I, I... will always find farting funny. Now, a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, I think about one in 10 don't, because I think it is a natural thing. And especially if it's in a sort of a situation, it's a, it has to be in the right situation. 
So I would put flatulence in there. It's a very good choice. Thank you. And I think those one in ten, they've been trained into not finding it funny. I think it is. I think uh, women particularly are told you don't do that. I think, you know, it sounds sexist to me to say so, but it's actually sexist that they're supposed to not do it. Mm. Um, And I think there's people, you know, it's a bit of a marker because... I think it's nothing to do with being highbrow or lowbrow. I, I, I remember a friend of mine telling me he, he ran um, Mike Ritchie, who's, who's Kate Burton's husband, actually. ran. He runs three theatres in LA, or just retired. But I remember him telling me he was doing a play with an actor called Brian Bedford, who's a British actor. Mm. And um, there was an argument that Brian was having with the director about, uh, I think, a fart joke in the play. And he said, well, OK, we're going to settle this. I'm going to talk to Mike Ritchie. And he went to Michael and said... Um, I think this is wrong, don't you? And Mike just looked at him and went, no, farts are funny, and walked off. <laughs> yeah, quite right. Farts are funny, farts are funny. And if anyone disagrees with that, then probably we're not going to spend too much time together. No, no. Many years ago, Rick Mayle told me that they were touring around as the young ones in the tour bus. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one day, having a discussion about the most embarrassing thing that had ever happened to them. And they had a very quiet roadie. And eventually they said, come on, what's your story, John? And he went, oh, well, you know, um, I picked up this girl in a in a bar and we went back to my place. And uh, in the morning I woke up, I thought, oh, I'm going to fart. So uh, I thought, <laughs> I thought oh, I'll fart in her face. That'll be funny. <laughs> of course. Of that'll course. be funny. That'll be funny. Hilarious. And so he positioned himself to fart in her face. Then he said, Unfortunately, we'd had a curry and uh, I followed through. And, uh, oh, God. He said this whole tour bus went completely quiet for about five minutes. <laughs> the shock of it. Oh, my God, that's the most disgusting story I've ever heard. And I think it still is to this day. That's fantastic. And I'm so glad that within a short space of time, we've managed to hit the bottom <laughs> of the barrel. That's the story of my life. I love that. <laughs> I love that. God, that's good. Oh, my God. I mean, a good follow-through story is always, is always fun. <laughs> well, while we're on this toilet subject, mm. I went to a friend, an old school friend who lives up in Montecito near here, and he was so excited. He said, I've got to show you what something. And I said, okay. He, said, he took me into the toilet, and he said, these bidets that you can attach to your toilet. You don't have to get a special one of those Japanese electric toilets or anything like that. And he said, you just hook it up to the plumbing and it cleans your ass. It's fantastic. <laughs> it, it just does the job for you to switch this thing, cleans it up, off you go, clean as a whistle. And he said, it's kind of fun. It's quite nice. He said, I always feel two inches taller when I walk out of the toilet. And I, I was like making fun of him. And then he said, no, please just try it. <laughs> so he left and he was right. It was extraordinary. I highly recommend uh, these things for people. Mm. Um, God, what, 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 just, what is this show? I, what, what is this, I, this relatively highbrow concept I've managed to take <laughs> into the toilet and beyond no, already. It's a very good point of discussion. Why are the British particularly so averse to B-Days? What's wrong with us? Why don't we like washing our arse? I love them. There's not an Englishman I know who hasn't used a B-Day to wash his feet, but the idea of using them to wash your arse. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure. I've just never done it. Let's be honest. I mean, we don't want to get too graphic because I'm sure this is a family show. Well, I'm not sure at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, it's not always 
an easy experience afterwards. And sometimes you go, I've got to have a shower now. I've got to have a shower. And that's a whole, that's a whole other commitment to have to then get in the shower. <laughs> so to have this little thing that does the whole thing in one mm. is spectacular. I can't recommend them enough. Okay. Boy, am I showing my age talking about this. <laughs> well, maybe. But we should certainly put flatulence into the time capsule. Thank you. Uh, I will seal it tightly, obviously. <laughs> Very tightly. Yes. Jim, what's your second item? My second item is uh, football. Ah, good. Football has played a huge part in my life. Um, it's my only major interest or hobby outside writing and acting. As you probably know, because your brother, who I met shortly before I met you, is, is, a, is mm. a passionate Crystal Palace fan, as I am. Yes. And it's been a major part of my life. And uh, being a fan, particularly, I think it was because uh, I was a relatively introverted and emotionally repressed child, and like a lot of Brits. And so I found football, being a football fan, a place to be able to release that. Mm. And I think that's true. And there's a wonderful, obviously, Nick Hornby's book, Fever Pitch, goes into that in great detail. So I found it has, it's been a great friend to me throughout my life. And as a fan, it's where my addictive, per- I, I, I'm not an addictive person, but that particularly... I am addicted to football and um, I got very involved with Crystal Palace and, and actually founded in 1999 when they went into liquidation or they're about to go into liquidation. I founded the Supporters Trust with mm. two other um, Palace fans. And it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life because we helped save the club and uh, raised a lot of money and it unified the club in a way, more importantly than actually even the financial side and, and getting a, someone to buy it, mm. which we were a major part of. It was an incredible experience of, of unifying people around something that I cared about. And I made so many friends from that time. And it was it was great to also learn new skills. I mean, one of the guys was Paul Newman, not, not that Paul Newman. <laughs> Paul was a, a sports editor at The Independent. And he and Richard House, who was a, a very high-flying lawyer, did all the kind of legal side mm. of setting it, the trust up. But the three of us kind of put this thing together and we each had different functions and we it was lovely to form a sort of team and I became the spokesman front man, you know, for things. Mm. So I would do some of those things. Like I had to speak on the pitch at halftime to appeal to fans. And there was one occasion when I came in from LA and I literally went straight to the ground from the airport and um, Paul came up to me as I arrived five minutes before kickoff and said, um, we've got to do this speech to appeal to fans for money at halftime. But Sean Hughes, the comedian, mm-hmm. was supposed to do it. And Sean's just got a stage fright. And I went, well, what? He's a stand-up comedian. And he said, <laughs> I don't know. He's either that or he, he, I don't know. So can you do it? So I said, oh, okay. And so the first half, I was like flipped through his speech that Paul had written and tried to kind of get a grip. And then it came to half time, and they led me out onto the pitch like a lamb to slaughter. <laughs> and I had a microphone and I had to stand in the centre circle. And it was 20,000 people there. We were playing Manchester City, who had the whole of one side of the ground. And they were top of the league. It was in the championship, the second division down. And they were top of the league and we were kind of in the middle. Mm. And I thought, I'm going to die a death here. <laughs> and as I'm going out there, they're already singing, who are you, who are you, and making kind of, Jerking off gestures, wanking gestures. Yeah. So I'm like, what do I do here? And I, I did something so shameless that I still almost I'm embarrassed to, to to think about it. I started by turning to them 
And I said, I'd like to welcome all the Manchester City fans here today. And I'd just like to say, not only do I hope you get promotion, but I hope that you beat Manchester United home and away next season in the Premier League. <laughs> there was this moment of silence, and then suddenly the whole stand erupted yeah. with cheers and applause, and then it went quiet, and I did my speech. You tart. Exactly. <laughs> it was the most shameless. <laughs> I, it was like, I must have set Guinness Book of Record for kissing the most arses <laughs> in about 30 seconds. It was 8,000 Mancunian arses were kissed in a space of 30 seconds. It was shameless. The Crystal Palace fans, maybe it is as a result of that situation where they almost went under, as it were. Twice. Twice. Twice it yes. was, yeah. But they are the most passionate. And yet, it seems to me every time I've gone... The most friendly. Yeah. They have this sense of, we really love our team and we're going to support them, whatever. But, you know, we're not that bothered about you supporting your team. Yeah. Now, I once heard a brilliant chant at Crystal Palace. They were playing West Ham, who I suppose would be, you know, sort of rivals, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And Palace were winning 3-0. And for about 15 minutes, they chanted, we're shit, but we're 3-0 up. We're shit. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. That's the other thing about football is the humour, yeah. both as a fan and a player. I mean, that's the other part of it, why I put football in, is because I've played it for 55 years. And um, it kept me sane, particularly in LA, because I had this every Sunday for literally 30 years. I played every Sunday morning, mm. year round, unless I was out of town shooting something. And I ran a team for a while. And there was a couple of show busy people, but mostly it was just... Brits or other other people from all over the world who were in other businesses. So it got me out of the showbiz world mm. every week. And I felt like I could live a normal life, you know, a, that wasn't in a factory town, which was fantastic. And, and it's it's always been a great, a great source of humour on the field and off it, mm. especially if you're playing with smart people. I'm, at university, I played with a guy who was a, a Shakespeare scholar and he was a goalkeeper and in those days, there was a rule that you, you couldn't take more than so many steps as a goalkeeper before you had to release it. Yeah. And he got called for a free kick for taking too many steps. And my friend Rob said, oh, ref, that is a law more honoured in the breach than the observance. <laughs> and the referee said, that's dissent. And Rob said, no, Shakespeare. <laughs> and immediately got booked which I loved. It was one of the best yellow cards I've ever heard. And then I got one for sarcasm playing in LA. I applauded a, a referee for giving a, the other team a throw and it was clearly ours. Mm. And I applauded and said, well done, ref, well done, really good decision. And he said, that's sarcasm. And I said, no, no, it's actually irony. <laughs> and apart from the fact that he might have been right, I ended up getting booked for that. I don't go to football matches very often, but I do like it. I love the thrill of it, the thrill of the noise. Yes. When it happens. It's fantastic. And Palace is great because it really is sort of safe family. Mm. You know, underdogs are always good to go and watch anyway. I mean, who wants to support Manchester United or Liverpool? <laughs> or so anyway, yes, football would be would be under that umbrella I would put in. Mm. And, of course, it took you to Broadway. It did, but indirectly, yes, because obviously that, that show was about a goalkeeper and um, I wouldn't have done that show if I hadn't been interested in football. Mm. And it jettisoned my career. Um, 
So yeah, so it really it was an important part of my life, and, and um, it is my major obsession. Lovely. I don't blame you. I should put well, all of football will go in then. I think so. Why I not? think football and farting. So we got two Fs. <laughs> okay. And my next two are both two Ms. So that's interesting. Okay. So what is number three? Okay, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jim Piddock, but I have to interrupt it for a moment so that we can play some ads. We'll be back in a sec. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to My Time Capsule and the rest of the things that Jim Piddock is going to put in his time capsule. Number three is um, Monty Python. Oh, how marvellous. It was, without a doubt, the biggest comedic influence on me growing up. And I think what I loved about it was that it was smart and silly as opposed to humour that's in the middle. Mm. You know, the stuff we grew up with was very middle of the road, usually, on sitcoms. And, and I just thought it opened my eyes and ears and everything to this idea that you could be very, very smart with your humour and also extremely silly or vulgar. And uh, the high and the low always interest me in comedy. Mm. And, I, and I suppose that traditionally great comic writing and even back to Shakespeare was always really geared to both. Yeah, playing to the pit. Exactly. So I think Python was was really instrumental in me stylistically of how I approached acting as sketch comedy and um, writing also. And then I had the most amazing experience because, you know, sort of thing of meeting your idols. <laughs> literally. And I did meet, literally, my uh, Eric Idol. Uh, about 20 years ago, we got cast in a film together. Wow. And I was quite nervous about meeting him because I held them all in such sort of high esteem. I'd met Cleese very briefly mm-hmm. in New York and I'd gone to Graham Chapman's memorial, the, the BAFTA thing that happened. So that was the only connections I'd had with the Pythons. But I always felt this kind of affinity and I met Eric and I was slightly kind of trepidatious, um, but we sort of hit it off almost immediately. It was a, one of the worst films that's ever been made. <laughs> it was called Burn Hollywood Burn, an Alan Smithy film. And for those that don't know, Alan Smithy is the name that directors 
if they don't like the final cut of a movie, they take their name off it. Mm. And it's directed by Alan Smithy. <laughs> so it was a script written by Joe Esterhaas, who's a, not a comedy writer, and it really showed in the script. <laughs> um, and, and it was sort of a long to our inside joke about this director whose real name was Alan Smithy. Yeah. And he was directing his film, and Eric was playing Alan Smithy. That's a good idea. It, it's a fun idea. Um, but it was one of those things that had... I mean, the cast was insane. It was Ryan O'Neill, Coolio, Sandra Bernhardt, Harvey Weinstein wow. was in it. I mean, uh, yeah, now, now you'll say, did you do a film with O.J. Simpson? Says, no, no, just Jeffrey Dahmer, the cooking show. Um, who else was in it? Um, Sylvester Stallone. Good Lord. Whoopi Goldberg, Jackie Chan, Robert Evans, the producer... Robert Shapiro, the lawyer who actually represented O.J. Simpson, so there is a connection there. Uh, Larry King, Dominic Dunn, Billy Bob Thornton was in it. Wow. Billy Bob Thornton. Great. So it was an incredible class. It was very inside. And I had 17 scenes in it, and they were all with Eric and with Naomi Campbell. And he ends up going kind of crazy and ending up in a, a, a loony bin. And his attendants in the lunatic asylum were me and Naomi Campbell. Mm. And so it was just this oddest thing. I mean, to be thrown into that situation, it's so bizarre to find yourself. And so it took about a week to shoot because they're all little snippets, these 17 scenes. Mm. Eric and I kind of hit it off right away because we both love football. We both love cricket. And I remember just sitting there talking, the three of us, just between scenes. And we were all laughing. And, and I looked at Eric and he looked at me and I think it was nothing spoken. We both were mutually, uh, immediately aware of the absurdity of the situation we were in. And it was directed by Arthur Hiller, who did Love Story. So this was just, this whole combination of everything was so absurd. And it was, it was odd. It was almost like we were communicating without words. And we both just burst out laughing. And we started watching football in pubs together soon afterwards. And then he invited me to, he's had a place in Provence, in France, for since the 70s that he's it's a wonderful place that started off as a sort of shepherd's hut and has grown and grown and grown to this beautiful estate mm. and he invited me there and I fell in love with Provence so he introduced me to that too so it's it's my that's my sort of go-to place to to escape to and he has become I would say probably my best friend in America and we've worked together many many times uh, as you said what about Dick yeah did an, a show called an evening without Monty Python which was to celebrate the 40th anniversary where five of us we did a week in LA no two weeks in LA and a week on Broadway it was an amazing experience to actually do the best of all the sketches you know and to be in them. <laughs> oh my god however many years later <laughs> what would your 14 year old self think of that oh I would never have dreamt it in a million years mm. and it was odd because it wasn't Monty Python obviously but the reaction was extraordinary and and you realize what a phenomenon they are because we were essentially a tribute band yeah and I've never seen you know the stage door I, I having spent time on Broadway I knew what that's about you come out and there's always a few often rather strange people <laughs> wanting autographs or whatever or pictures but this was just hordes of people and you thought, well, we're not Monty Python. No. And then they were all, you know, pictures and autographs. And, and it was, you go, this is a phenomenon. Mm. So I would put Monty Python in there as, I love comedy of all sorts, but that was probably the biggest one for me in my lifetime. It has the personal connection too, because of actually meeting someone who not only, you know, they always say, don't never meet your idols because would be disappointed. But I have to say that... Nine times out of ten when I have, and obviously Eric's a prime example, but 
whenever I've met them or worked with them, um, I found the opposite. Yeah. So maybe I pick good idols. Maybe I'm, <laughs> I, I pick good people to be impressed with when I'm young. Yeah. Have you ever found yourself saying, I didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition to Eric? I found myself saying it on stage in the show. <laughs> um, we, sometimes, we, 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 we sometimes bounce off Python stuff, but more often than not, he believes that I am literally the master of the... I can find a double entendre in anything anyone says. <laughs> he said even in, even single entendres. I'm breaking on a single entendre. <laughs> I love a good entendre. And I, I, I mean, it can get too much with it. I remember Chris Guest telling me about someone he knew who just could he couldn't stop himself anyone said anything and he'd go oh you know oh. <laughs> and he said it became really annoying after a while because you just say good morning and he go oh <laughs> you know like no not good even i can't find him good morning no. something <laughs> i know what you mean when you meet those idols people that you've always admired yeah and, then, and you, you go oh wow you're just as i hoped you would be I know, it's really rather nice, mm. isn't it? It reaffirms your faith in humankind. Yes. Or, as I say, in one's choice of who you admire. Mm. Well, I have to say the world would be a very different place if it weren't for Python. Uh, no question. They, they were the Beatles of comedy. Mm. No question. Yeah. So, with great joy, I put them into your time capsule for you. Fantastic. So, we've got two more items to put in, Jim. Yes. The fourth one is May 1st specifically 1994, because I had gone through, uh, after when I got married, we, 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 after about five years, we decided we wanted to have kids. And for various reasons, we couldn't get pregnant. And so we went through all that infertility stuff. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people listening have gone through this. And I mean, it's, well, it's, it's, uh, I had to inject my, my then wife with various things. And I did discover that I, I actually like giving injections rather than getting them. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed that. And I took so much verbal abuse doing so. And you have to, then you do weird stuff. I remember driving over Coldwater Canyon with a vial of my sperm <laughs> to the clinic and thinking, if I got into an accident, <laughs> how the hell do I explain when the officer says, excuse me, sir, why is the semen all over your upholstery? <laughs> Uh, but luckily I didn't get into an accident. Um, so I tried everything and had a couple of miscarriages, which, um, is a whole other story. And, mm. um, you know, it's a weird thing, miscarriages, because it, it's, it's a, it's a, a loss and a death, but you can't mourn it in the same way. It's sort of, it's like the idea of something has died as opposed to the reality mm -hmm. of it. And it, but it's still, it's still a grieving process. So we, we went through two of those. It's an extraordinarily broadly shared experience as well. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of people, and it's not talked about that no. much. There's no kind of, you don't hear about grieving sessions for people who have had miscarriages. Um, anyway, we, we finally got to the point where it was just not going to happen. It was partly age and whatever, incompatibility of this and that and the other. But we decided to adopt. That was an interesting moment too for, in me because I, I didn't know many people adopted growing up. I think I knew one at my school and that was it. Mm. So it was an alien thing to me. And I, and I was like, well, at first I was slightly like, well, do I want to do that? And then I kind of thought it through and, and processed it. And I went, why does one want to have children from one's own body or one's own bloodline? When, to be honest, a lot of the things one hates in oneself, when you look in the mirror <laughs> genetically, <laughs> are things that you inherited from your birth parents. Yes. You and it's also hanging on to an ego thing. It's like a little mini me and... It, and then once I got to the idea that I actually just wanted a child and it didn't matter where the child came from, I wanted that. And I, it was a physiological thing for me, like when women get broody, I was literally 
going into supermarkets and this will sound weird, <laughs> but looking at children. Uh, but I was looking at kids running around playing with their parents and, and feeling this, I really want to have a child. Mm. And so we decided to adopt and we, 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 we registered with a lawyer and um, we'd sort of a couple of, things came up and, and, and they weren't right for us or whatever. And then heard nothing for months and months and months. And I was lying in bed on May the 1st in 1994 at seven o'clock, just sort of half awake and the phone rang and I was like, who the fuck is calling at this time? And I, and I went into the other room to answer it and it was the lawyer. And he said, how quickly can you get up to Santa Barbara? And I said, well, I just got up at seven something. And he said, well, this young lady came in last night and she... Uh, gave birth to a child that she had hidden from her parents and everybody. And she already has a, a child and, and and she knows that she can't raise it the way she'd like to. Mm-hmm. And she's picked your, you, you, you do like a, a file, a picture resume and a, a sort of proposal. Mm. And the pictures are in there and, and you're who you are. And she's picked your, your profile to be the prospective, the possible adoptive parents. Yes. So I quickly woke Margaret up and, and we got in the car probably 10 minutes later and drove up to Santa Barbara. And literally, while I was, uh, I think Margaret was driving, I was going through this uh, baby book, you know, <laughs> what to because if this happens, we're going to be parents fairly soon. And we got to the hospital about two hours later and um, we met the birth mother at the same time, she was seeing the baby for the first time. Good Lord. Which is... Uh, <laughs> getting emotional t- talking about it. Um, it's a highly charged moment. Um, but we we both instantly took to her. The mother was someone we went in another lifetime. She would have been a friend of ours. She, we hit it off immediately. And... Um, we both sort of met the baby at the same time. The baby then went back into the, the kind of, um, it's not an incubator, but where, where they keep the babies. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called now. And we talked to her and, and found out the circumstances. And um, it was incredibly, incredibly emotional. Uh, she bared her soul, we bared us. And we knew that it was right. And... Um, so we kind of went outside and uh, we sort of said, well, obviously this is going to work. And she said, I'd love you to, to take care of her. And, and the wonderful thing was that she'd said the reason that she chose our profile was there was some photos we had in there. And I'd included one of uh, a family Christmas lunch with our families wearing silly hats <laughs> after pulling Christmas crackers. And apparently the birth mother had had those when she was a child. And she said, I want that for my child. Oh, how marvellous. And it was a photo we put in we, and then took out and then put back in again because we thought, oh, no, it's part of who we are. More mm. And she chose us because of those silly hats. And so we then went back and did the paperwork. And uh, I, uh, I went, literally had to pay her medical expenses. And so I put my baby on a, on a, on a MasterCard. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to get the miles for this, which is pretty good. Um, <laughs> However, I didn't use it as a tax write-off, so I, I'm not that shameless. No. <laughs> um, but we became parents within a space of... But by 1pm, we were her parents. Good Lord. And the moment that was extraordinary, that visceral moment, where the nurse handed me her for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the baby, I mean, our newborn baby, she was not even 24 hours old. You know, they had their eyes closed, usually. And, and I held her, and, and um, her eyes opened. 
And she looked straight at me and I was looking at her. And there was a connection there that you just go, you can't describe. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, and I went, I'm her father. Mm. I knew it. Mm. And, and I hope on some level she could say and go, that's my father. And so we literally then went to a sort of supermarket around the a big store and had to buy a baby seat, <laughs> uh, all the things yeah. to, for, for a baby, clothes. We had to buy her a Minnie Mouse baby suit. <laughs> and we drove home with her. And so we became Insta parents. That's amazing. So that date for me is the most important date of my life. Yes. My daughter's now 27 and is a wonderful Wonderful young woman. So, yeah. Fantastic. The wonderful thing about that story is that clearly the birth mother in that moment, which you can imagine she might have wanted that to be private. She might have wanted that to be her moment. But the sharing it with you, it must have been very, very clear to her that that you instantly loved that child. Yes, it was um, was extraordinary. It was... was, uh... A, a, a really almost a spiritual moment of just you're going, we are all here in this, but we know this is right. Mm. And her explanations all made sense. And it really is one of the most people sort of think, you know, giving a baby away. How could it? it was one of the most selfless acts that she could possibly have done yeah. because she knew that she couldn't give her the upbringing of the life that she thought that we could. Mm. Well, have. And hopefully have, yes. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was it was an extraordinary chapter. I mean, and I've talked to a lot of people who've adopted and normally, you know, you get many, many months notice. Mm-hmm. So to wake up at seven o'clock and not even know of her existence and to be her father by lunchtime Amazing. Was, was extraordinary. The thing that I would say to you, if you've not had your own child, is that for me, and I'm not sure this would be true for everybody, but for me, the experience of seeing my child for the first time was very similar to that. Mm-hmm. While the child is in your wife, as it were, it's part of the body of the person you love. That's the way I sort of saw my babies. Right. I didn't see them as separate entities until they came out. And then there they were. Oh, how interesting. So seeing them for the first time was almost exactly the same as you seeing your daughter for the first time. Yeah, I'm not religious really at all, but it is a spiritual experience and because you sort of feel whether it's a soul or some energy that that is just, it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And, and I'm a firm believer in families aren't about bloodlines. Most of the families I've made in my life through through show business or even Crystal Palace Football Club, whatever, they're all families of sorts. They're not about that. Um, and I uh, once I let go of that ego thing of like, I want to have my descendants and somebody descended from me, it's just ego. That's all it is. Yeah. So letting go of that and then welcoming this extraordinary spirit and, and being into my life was truly magical. Yeah. And, of course, the joy of being a parent is watching your children not be you. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there was some rough waves along the way. You know, I, I got divorced when she was about nine or ten, and that was very tough. And I, I I felt more guilty about that than anything else I've ever felt in my life, even though I knew it was exactly the right decision and it was it was healthy for everybody, for mm. us to get divorced and to her to live with each for separately and, and be right. But but it still was very, very difficult. And, and I think harder on her than obviously, well, harder on everybody. It's hard on everybody. Mm-hmm. But I, di- I did feel that was that was the toughest moment. But we, we've come through all that and she's just a wonderful, wonderful young woman. I'm so proud of her. Fabulous. 
I'm sorry, but I, I get choked up telling that story. Don't be sorry uh, at almost. all. It's a lovely, lovely thing. Yeah. And of course you get emotional about it. What an amazing moment. And as you say, the best moment in your life, I'm sure. No question. Mm. No question. Okay, but well then we will put the 1st of May into the time capsule. Uh, and we've done a wonderful arc from farting to uh, <laughs> emotional parenting. There you are. Anybody who gave up on us early on. I know. We got there in the end. Exactly. <laughs> it's the high and the low. Yeah. So we've got the one final thing to put into the time capsule, which is something you'd like to get rid of. Yeah. Now, this is one that's, this is an intriguing one mm. for me because I, I feel it has to be a separate capsule because. If this is something you want to bury forever and to be forgotten, you don't want people in the future. And this is something to be learned from it. But maybe it's in a separate compartment. Yeah, that's, that's your, the way I like to think of it. That's your decision. A, a separate compartment with one of those sort of um, Chinese locks that is almost impossible to get into. Yes. Yeah, no, that's that's good. Uh, and you just read about what's in there. Yeah, yeah. With a sign saying, you don't want to go here. Yeah, do not open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, go with the fart <laughs> instead. Um there were three contenders, and they're all things that have really come to the fore in the last five or six years. And one is the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The next is Brexit. Yes. And the third is Donald Trump. So these were my contenders, and I will quickly eliminate. Pandemic, I thought, obviously, in terms of the death toll and the sickness, was the worst of these things. Mm. But I believe that it's going to bury itself soon, so it doesn't need my help. Yeah. Brexit is, God, it's, it's tricky ground because you never know who's on what side of that thing. But I, I was fiercely against it and still am. I think it, it was the biggest, uh, like John le Carré, I think it was the biggest strategic error that the British government has made or the British people have made since the Suez Canal crisis. Mm. Now, I, was, I was only six months old, I think, when that happened, so I didn't know the Suez Canal thing. Uh, but apparently it proved that Britain was of greatly diminished status. Mm. This seems like an even greater own goal to me. There was nothing about it that made any sense to me. And I heard arguments from all sorts of people. And the one person who actually came the closest to giving an argument, they thought, okay, well, now I see why you're going for it, but I don't agree with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It was Steve Parrish, the Crystal Palace chairman. And he explained why he economically thought it made sense because of the burdensome nature of various things. And, and he was looking at it from an economic point of view, which I actually didn't agree with his his reasoning and arguing, and, and but but he gave a very very good account mm -hmm. as he's a very smart man, and, and I generally agree with him on almost everything. But I thought the basic premise was wrong. First of all, it was it was Cameron just trying to save his ass, you know, and get a bigger mandate, mm -hmm. and used it because he thought it was a slam dunk win. Yeah. But you know, you think about that time, 2012, we had the Olympics in London. Britain has never been more united. It was a wonderful feeling of pride. And, and and then, no, you know, if you'd said to people then, you know, what about leaving the EU? No, I said, oh, fuck off, who cares? Yeah. And it was these agitators, these people with self-interest who plugged away. The, it's always these bastard extremists <laughs> who are the loudest. Yeah. The Nigel Farages, who I'd bury myself alive if I could. <laughs> forget the time capsule. The people like him who... Uh, agitators. They just, they want attention and this idea of sovereignty. I would say to people, what's sovereignty? Mm -hmm. What is it? Tell me what sovereignty is because it's ridiculous. And so sell that. And then it, of course, it masked all the, the latent things. And this is why people got a bad rap, wrongly, some of them who voted to leave. It did expose various xenophobic 
racist, fear-based things. Mm. They're, you know, they're going to take our jobs. So it was totally fear of the unknown. Mm. But I feel very strongly that that was a huge, awful thing that divided a country unnecessarily. I think it was very, some very smart people, manipulative people, who were going to benefit financially or in other ways from Brexit. Mm-hmm. And I resented it personally, by the way, because I loved being able to move and work and freely around Europe. And when my daughter was born, I got her a British passport because I said, you've got the whole continent now at your Mm. disposal. And it's a marvellous, diverse, fabulous continent, Europe. So to have that taken away from me, I really resented it, particularly, and I'm going to get really pissed off here, I couldn't fucking vote. I wasn't given a vote (laughs) because I'd lived out of the country for more than seven years. Mm. But I think Brexit will ultimately reverse itself. I do believe that uh, if we don't end up rejoining, I think that we will end up in a situation where we will be less isolated because it won't work. It simply won't work being isolated. So Brexit didn't make it. Ah, right. So the final thing that makes it is Donald Trump. Um, I think, you know, he is the worst human being in my lifetime, public figure, without a question of doubt. I knew about him in the 1980s when I was living and working in New York, and he was a joke figure because everyone knew he was a con man Mm -hmm. and a liar and a self-promoter. No one took him seriously, and that was probably the problem because that's, I think, how these people become megalomaniacs. But he is the physical, mental, psychological embodiment of everything that I believe is bad in human nature, all the bad things, and brings out the worst in others. And people say when he's he's compared to Hitler or Mussolini or or even Silvio Berlusconi, that those comparisons aren't ridiculous because Hitler was a figure of fun. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who would have thought this man with a silly voice and a ridiculous moustache and hair could become this figure? that people worshipped and did dreadful things in his name. So, I mean, the same thing. How did a fat, pockmarked man with terrible, badly dyed hair implants, a girdle lifts in his shoes, wears an adult nappy or diaper for the American audience due to drug abuse-related incontinence, how did he, and still does, manage to get millions of people under his thrall? How did it happen? Uh, And I suddenly, for the first time in my life, went, because we grew up and we are post-war and we go, how did that ever happen? How did Hitler ever get people to do that? Mm. And now I saw how it happens. And and it's like the cult of personality. Seriously, that's the one you're going to choose? Yeah. You know, if, if you're going to choose a personality, fucking hell, why that one? Um, I'm swearing a lot. I apologize. No, right. It seems, um, in fact, it is always the slightly absurd person who succeeds in doing this. Yes. Mussolini, laughable. Absolutely laughable. You know, and I think possibly to personally, I've always hated my entire life. I've hated pathological liars. I've hated narcissists, malignant particularly. I mean, I know narcissists that are actually okay on the spectrum of narcissism where they're benign Mm. and that's okay to me. And sociopaths who are functioning sociopaths and that's okay. Bullies, cowards, shameless con men, cheats. I hate them all. They're the people I detest. Mm. And here was all those people in one body who became president somehow of the most powerful nation on earth. And the result is, you know, um, it's ridiculous to blame him for 800,000 COVID deaths in America, but I would say 200,000 of those blood is on his hands because he encouraged people not to take it seriously. He fought it, made it political. And there's, you know, a big chunk of this country that 
didn't get vaccinated or died or got sick and will be sick for the rest of their lives because of Donald Trump. Mm. They believed him and they did it for him, not fear of needles, not just general conspiracies. Because he told them to. Because he told them to. And And I feel he set America back to a point that it may never get back to in my lifetime. And I'll never forgive that because this is a wonderful, wonderful country with some marvellous people. And it's so sad to see it really in serious jeopardy. I think that's been coming in a while, but Donald Trump pushed it over the edge. And so I would happily bury him in a separate part of the time capsule. And if it could be buried literally under the ground, I would Beg your permission to take a huge giant shit on it. <laughs> you have it. I'm so glad we came back to that. Thank you. We, I knew we'd come back to the arse in the end. Yes. Well, gosh, you got me angry, you got me crying, you got us a little bit, you laughed. We've covered everything. And we've had farting. And we've had lots of flatulence. Perfect. The show that gives you everything. <laughs> Jim, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much. Likewise. This was really fun. I was honoured to be in the company of the people that you've had before me. Bless you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Jim Piddock, in the US of A. Isn't modern technology wonderful? In fact, if you enjoyed this episode and decide to subscribe to this podcast, then we will send you all new episodes as they become available. We'll record them onto a C60 cassette tape and send them to you within two weeks of release, we promise. Actually, no, modern tech is even more wonderful than that. You can have them waiting for you on your phone app when you awake, ready to download or stream, whatever that means. You can find out what the podcast is up to if you follow me or at my TC pod for my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Feel free to contact us anytime that way. You can listen to the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify at your leisure. And this has been a cast-off production for Acast, although we're on all good podcast providers. Your and our producer was John Fenton Stevens. Now, before we go, I thought I'd just let you know that as an experiment, this podcast is being broadcast this weekend on FM, where you can hear Jim and me chatting on your radio. Isn't that exciting? Of course, if you don't want to listen to us again, you can always tune in on Longwave, where we will be playing cricket for eight hours. Yeah, that joke would probably confuse any Americans listening, but sorry, it's not for you. It's for Eric Idle. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 